I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. It's Martin Shipton, and today I'm with Geraint Telvan Davis, who has uh, for many years been a major player in Welsh civil society. Uh, at one time, uh, Geraint was the controller of BBC Wales, and he's done many other things, including chairing the Institute of Welsh Affairs, which he co-founded, and he's also been the chair of the Welsh National Opera and the Arts Council of Wales. Um, but I thought we'd start off, uh, Geraint, in the uh, way that's become customary for these podcasts, just by asking you about your roots. So where are your roots in Wales? Well, I suppose I, I, I grew up in Barry, Swansea and Cardiff, so I've done a kind of Glamorgan circuit. Um, uh, although I was actually born in Carmarthen, um, my father, um, uh, before he went into the BBC, strangely enough, was a pharmacist. He had a chemist shop in Swansea, which he lost in the Blitz in February 1941. And my parents, they lost the house as well, and my parents moved out to... Uh, they rented a farmhouse outside Ammonford. And as a result of that, I was born in a hospital in Carmarthen. Uh, then at the end of the war, we moved to Barry. Um, and then about the age of uh, nine, uh, moved to Swansea. Uh, spent five years in Swansea and then came back to Cardiff in 1957. And uh, apart from um, some forays into England, into uh, the northeast of England, at Newcastle twice, uh, and London, um, I spent most of my time in Cardiff. You went to university in Oxford? Jesus College, Oxford, yes, yeah. Famous, um, uh, a college famous for uh, being a, a place where, where the Welsh students went. You know. How much has the Welsh language figured in your life, Geraint? Uh, well, I mean, la- the Welsh language was the uh, language of the home. Both my parents uh, spoke Welsh, you know, my father uh, wrote 30 books, you know, um, uh, mostly in Welsh. Um, I wrote poetry in Welsh. He wrote a lot of literary criticism and so on. Uh, wrote a number of uh, books, uh, uh, about um, two books on the Vale of Glamorgan. Um, so he was very much a, a literary and broadcasting uh, figure, having done this amazing career switch, having lost his pharmacy. And yet, it's not a nationalist uh, family, is it? No, I think I think my my father was um, a Liberal councillor on uh, Barry Town Council. Well, I actually think he called himself an Independent, but his brother um, uh, Alan Talman Davis stood as a Liberal candidate in Carmarthen on a number of occasions in the fifties, um, uh, but pulled out I think after the fifty nine uh, election. And who knows if he'd stuck around? You know, Gwynfer Evans might not have won. <laughs> <laughs> Did uh, politics uh, as a as an activist ever attract you? Uh, no, it didn't. I tell you why. Um, I, I went into uh, journalism. Um, started as a trainee here at the Western Mail um, in '66, um, and at that time, the Thompson Papers they owned uh, not only a lot of regional papers, they also owned the Times and the Sunday Times. And Thompson sent me on a kind of tour of Britain uh, where I went off to work on uh, a newspaper in Newcastle, the Journal. Uh, and then I came down to work for the Times. And I spent some time with the political team in Westminster, 
Well, I think that put me off um, uh, politics. Um, I, I think a lot of people, particularly, I think, you know, you talk to business people and they say, you know, oh, I think I'd, I'd like to go into politics. And actually, what they see themselves as is, is ministers, you know, taking decisions. Uh, but in fact, most of the people in Westminster are backbenchers. They are lobby fodder. And I think it's a terribly tough existence. Um, uh, I, I think there are there are other things to do in life, you know. Although I, I have to say, I respect politicians, you know. Um, I think there is far too much denigration of uh, politics. A lot of most people, I think, are in politics with very, very good motives. Tell me a bit about your journalism then, uh, Geraint, because obviously you started off in newspapers, went into broadcasting and had a very distinguished broadcasting career. So what about the transition from newspaper journalism to broadcast journalism? Well, I mean, basically my sort of, um, uh, uh, my career as an employed person uh, um, had sort of three parts to it really, 12 years in newspapers, 12 years in ITV and 10 years in the BBC. Uh, in newspapers, I started here on the uh, Western Mail as a trainee. I, be, I became the, the, the paper's first Welsh Affairs correspondent, um, which was really sort of fascinating because um, one saw the beginnings of the, um, uh, the whole devolution process, uh, the Commission on the Constitution, first under Crowther, and then after he died, uh, came the, the Kilbrandon Commission. So um, I did a, a, a lot of, um, uh, I, I sort of got involved in politics. Um, partly, I think, the, the, I did a, a postgraduate degree in the back bar of the old arcade, um, uh, pub in Cardiff, because that was, that was the meeting house, uh, mainly for, for Labour um, uh, Party members. Uh, people like Rodri Morgan, people like um, uh, Ted Rowlands, people like Barry Jones, the late Barry Jones. Um, it was a, a great place to uh, um, to discuss uh, uh, politics, and I suppose uh, you know it was a great place for a journalist to go to pick up stuff. That's right. And then, what took you into broadcasting? I went into broadcasting in 1978, and it was a very very difficult time. A uh, very difficult time for Britain economically, if you remember, there were pay freezes and so on. And um, to be honest, um, any prospect of sort of development at the Western Mail at the time seemed to have ground to a halt. And uh, I was suddenly offered the job of head of news and current affairs at HTV, uh, HTV Wales. Uh, so I, I switched into, uh, into that. And... Um, it was really a baptism of fire because I went there in September uh, 78. And, of course, the beginning of 79 was the referendum, first referendum on devolution. And actually, I, I chaired some of the television debates um, on that in 79. Um, and I stayed at HTV then um, until uh, 1987. I became assistant controller of programs, looking after just not just news and current affairs, but educational programs, documentaries, and so on. And it was during that period that I was exec producer on the History of Wales series, The Dragon Has Two Tongues, with yeah. Winford Vaughan Thomas and Gwyn Alf Williams. Um, and then I, I left HTV in uh, 78 and went up to 
Newcastle as director of programmes with Tyne's Television, which was fascinating because because the North East um, had many similarities to uh, South Wales. You know, it was a very much a politically it was very much a, a, a labour area. Um, there was a lot of heavy industry, you know, sort of shipbuilding, coal, and, you know, and so on. Um, the one thing that was different, though, from Wales, um, there there was in in um, sort of business and social life in in the northeast of England, there was a seam of old money, you know, the big landowners of Northumberland, and that's a seam that doesn't actually exist in Wales, it seems to me, or to a much much lesser extent. So you found on the board of Tynes Television. A lot of these these old families, you know, who seem to own half the county. Um, I think Nicholas Ridley was uh, from uh, that family. Well, he? Uh, he was. I mean, there, there was um, there was Sir Rafe Carr Ellison, who, as I say, owned half the county. There was the Viscount Ridley, which was Nicholas Ridley's brother, who was on the uh, uh, on the board. Uh, there was a man called Paul Nicholson who uh, owned Vaux Breweries. Uh, there was a guy called Robert Dickinson who was part of the Joycey family, who was a sort of legal advisor to just about everybody on the board, uh, and I think um, uh, the chair of border television across the Pennines, you know, um, uh, another titled uh, gent. You know. So it was, it, was, it, was, it was oddly different to Wales. I'd expected the North East to be very much the same, but it, 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 um, it had a few extra <laughs> dimensions. In working class terms, it was quite similar, wasn't it? With the in working class terms, it was very, very similar, uh, and of course, it was also the it was a period after Dan Smith and all the sort of um, uh, jiggery pokery that went on in the northeast around he, of course, around was the property le- development. The leader of Newcastle City, he was council, the leader of Newcastle City corruption. Council, and he was um, uh, he was largely responsible for uh, a lot of the urban uh, redevelopment of the, the centre of Newcastle. Eldon Square. Eldon Square and all that. But ultimately, you know, he went to prison. He um, did. Uh, and, um, you know, there, there were... It, it, it was rather... It was a different level of corruption from that which appeared in Swansea a few years later. You know, uh, but um, not dissimilar. Yes. So... When did you come back to Wales then, Geraint? I came back to Wales in uh, 1990 uh, as controller of BBC Wales. I had 10 years, really, from 1990 to 2000 at the BBC, and it was a really fantastic period. I mean, I loved that job. It was wonderful. And, of course, in that period, we had the move, the real move towards devolution, because after the 79 referendum... (coughs) It had really um, knocked the stuffing out of uh, pro-devolutionists to a large extent. It had. I mean, you know, uh, uh, I think the thing that really revived it was the miners' strike. You know, that altered the um, uh, whole political climate uh, in Wales. Um, You know, there were elements in the Labour Party that sort of, you know, really started to push uh, devolution. Uh, There was also, of course, the work of my good friend John Osmond, famous book, Wales, the National Question Again, you know. So there there were lots of... Um, there were lots of uh, things that happened in the in the late eighties and then early nineties, um, uh, and I was you know glad to be able to be there. Really, um, uh, I left the BBC just after the opening of the National Assembly. Thing is, of course, that it's different being involved in broadcasting to being in newspapers, isn't it? Because in newspapers, you can 
take a stand on a particular issue. Yeah. Did you find it frustrating that as the controller of BBC Wales, although obviously your heart was very much with the pro-devolution cause, you couldn't overtly uh, espouse it? Uh, no, <laughs> no, I mean, it, 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 it is frustrating. Um, but, you know, there, 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 are things you c- there are things you can do quite properly, I think, you know, um, within an impartial organisation like that to make sure that the debate is properly exposed. I mean, the thing which surprises me looking back is that um, uh, from 92 until 1000, I also chaired the Institute of Welsh Affairs. Um, and to be honest, I'm amazed that I got away with it. Um, and I don't think that I don't think anybody today could do those two things because um, uh, you've now got 60 politicians um, here in Cardiff Bay uh, looking over your shoulder the whole time. Uh, There is much more partisan politicking going on, um, uh, you know, uh, really on your doorstep. So you couldn't do it today. I mean, I took the view um, uh, that... The role of the Institute of Welsh Affairs uh, was um, not party political um, and that in a way it was uh, to pursue um, current affairs at a deeper level. Yes. That, was, that, was my justifica- that was my justification for it. And um, uh, I mean, the good thing was, I, you know, politicians um, didn't seem to mind. There are those, of course, um, outside it. There are some. I have heard some sniffy comments over the years uh, about the IWA, where people, had, you know, in the Labour Party, who perhaps some of them saw it as some sort of crypto-nationalist organisation. Have you ever heard that? Well, I, I mean, I've heard lots of descriptions. The um, the most famous description um, uh, that I heard in the early days of the uh, of the IWA was that it was the Conservative Party in drag. Um, That's what they used to call the church in England. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, uh, you know, some people thought it was a sort of a front for business, you know, and there was a lot of business involvement uh, in it. I mean, one of our tasks was actually to get the business community to think, uh, you know, which was which was quite something. There was a certain um, worry, I think, in the Labour Party, particularly I think after. John Osmond, who was sort of overtly nationalist himself. Um, but there was always a cross-party mix on the board of the IWA, um, which was um, important, I think. And, as you said, it was uh, founded at a quite crucial time and uh, it followed through to the, to the referendum. I suppose what you were seeking to do with the IWA, as you say, you were hoping to make the business community think. Well, but at that time, I mean, was there much... Uh, at that stage uh, of a, a sort of national civil society, would you say? Or, or, or did you no, want I to think, create I, I think, well, I, th- I think that, that civil society was, was relatively uh, weak. Um, you know, the power base was, uh, was in London. Basically, the, the setup in the Welsh office, you had uh, three ministers, you know, uh, s- sometimes only two ministers. Um, I remember when Peter Thomas became... Uh, Secretary of State uh, in 1970, uh, and they did away with the three ministers and uh, at the Welsh office and uh, got it down to two. And I remember Sir Edward Pugh, the permanent secretary, you know, 
saying very haughtily at the time, you know, what, what, why on earth do we need three ministers? You know, we can knock this off sort of in a part-time job almost. Um, uh, but uh, th- there was an issue. There was an issue about getting the business community to think hard about policy. And interestingly, one of the inspirations behind the Institute of Irish Affairs was Nick Edwards, uh, sadly who died uh, only recently. He was the Secretary of State for Wales. He was the Secretary of State for Wales, uh, Nick Edwards, later Lord Crickhowell. Um, and in fact, he was a, a specific inspiration. Um, there was a lunch at the County Club in Cardiff at which uh, Nick Edwards spoke. And he said, you know, he said, Quite specifically, you know, the business community has got to think much harder about, you know, um, uh, about sort of policy uh, issues. And in fact, that's what led um, Keith James, who was then the senior partner at Eversheds, and I. Um, we'd known each other a long, a long time. We'd been to school together. And we jointly wrote a, a paper um, which uh, suggested the creation of a kind of a Welsh think tank. Um, Keith was on an advisory board at the Cardiff Business School at the time and he sort of put that paper on the table there and one of the people around the table was David Waterston who was the chief executive of the Welsh Development Agency and he said hey this is a good idea you know, and he put some seed money into it so the, the WDA actually put some seed money into the IWA In the run up to the referendum in 97 um Presumably, you had great hopes for what a National Assembly could achieve. In terms of looking back now, how much of what you hope to achieve has been achieved? You would have to say overall it has been disappointing in terms of um, changing the sort of economic circumstances of Wales. You know? uh, I mean, if anything, um, we've gone backwards. I don't think that is the fault of Welsh government. Uh, I think, that, uh, well, not 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 wholly. Um, uh, I think one of the difficulties is that that uh, what you realise is that to improve the economic circumstances of Wales within the UK context, you've got to get the UK government and Welsh government actually, you know, be pointing in the same direction. And I think that the, one of the difficulties is sort of through the 80s and the 90s, um, uh, Westminster government was content to let the UK be, become less equal geographically. You know? uh, and uh, I think you know, you've, you've seen the sort of enormous growth of, um, uh, of London, which has actually set the place dry in some ways. Um, so in that sense, I think it's been a disappointment. In another sense, I don't think it has. I think that civil society um, uh, is much stronger than it was. I think there are lots more organisations um, uh, in being. I mean, strangely, uh, um, I, I may be claiming too much credit here, but it, it's, it's amazing how many of our university institutions have set up institutes of Welsh this and Welsh that. You know, uh, to actually sort of uh, think on, on policy uh, matters. But um, I think there has been, um, uh, it's been problematic. I don't think Welsh government has been strategic uh, enough um, uh, in tackling the economic issues. To what extent do you think that this um, edifice of civil society, if you like, that has built up 
since devolution has actually cut through to people living at the grassroots because there is I have heard people argue um, perhaps most notably Jeff Jones the former leader of Bridge End Council that there is this huge divide in Wales between the uh, legal Wales um, as he refers to it I think taking inspiration from yeah, Italian yeah, yeah. history uh, and uh, well real Wales if you like I mean do you think are you conscious of, of such a split well I think you can argue that that kind of split exists in most societies I don't think that Wales is any uh, different in, in that respect I mean the real problem is that we have economic inequalities um, you know the, the, the difference between the coastal strip here in the southeast and the valleys only eight, mile, eight nine miles north you know uh, is awful uh, and that, be that is because a well-paid industry was closed down without any kind of plan B now I don't think that was the fault of Welsh society um, uh, but you know that is what happened and I think that we've struggled to find an answer for that So, uh, but I, I don't think that that is because civil society is disconnected in fact a large part of Welsh civil society is connected with social conditions. I mean, if you take something like the Bevan Foundation, you know, uh, uh, that is very much engaged in uh, social uh, conditions. Uh, you take um, a lot of the housing association movement, that is very, very close to social conditions. You take some of the charities around uh, uh, housing and homelessness, they are very, very close to, to the, 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 the poor social conditions of people. So you know, all in all, I don't I don't buy that argument. Um, uh, it's inevitable, I think, that organisations that get involved with the um, development of policy and the pursuit of policy, you know, um, it's going to seem like a different activity to dealing with the problems of people on the ground. But, but you know, it's it's horses for courses. Now, uh, Garrett, you've just published a, a book. Yep. which is called Unfinished Business, Journal of an Embattled European. Now, this stems from your uh, involvement, your senior involvement in the, in the Remain campaign uh, at the referendum in 2016 in Wales, which, which you chaired here. Coming from the uh, element of the discussion which we've just had, and I enjoyed reading the book, uh, there are uh, quite a few essays uh, in it, uh, some of which were originally published in yep. the Western Mail as op-ed pieces yep. but I remember as I was reading through it a couple of days ago coming across uh, this passage uh, from one of the uh, essays which is called Call to Arms and in that you write the vote leave view of the world is one that predates low-cost air travel the channel tunnel the internet and global talks on trade and climate change not to mention two world wars it is a view of the world and of our future that on the 23rd of June will be rejected decisively by a Wales that will show itself once again on the progressive side of history. Now, the point I'm going to make here is really that um, there was in uh, Welsh civil society uh, a belief that Wales was a nation that as a consequence of the very large amounts of money that had come from the European Union to um, enable 
projects to take place uh, in the poorest parts of Wales, which in fact were two-thirds of Wales geographically. But as a consequence of that, the message would have got through to people on the ground that um, the European Union was, was a good thing, and there are of course all these statistics to show that uh, Wales was a net beneficiary. And yet, um, in fact, people like yourself were deluding yourselves into believing no, it, no, no, that, no. that that was the case. And in fact, we, you know, we'd already had at that stage UKIP getting an M MEP elected in Wales, and that in fact a lot of people on the ground were prepared to vote leave, which they did, and the majority of people voted leave. Yeah. Did that come as a shock to you? Uh, no. Um, the piece you quote, for example, um, uh, I, I, I did wonder about actually putting that in the book, but I thought, no, it's got to go in. I mean, you've got to remember that, that was written. I was chairing a campaign, right? And you know, you've got to you've got to tell people in a campaign that you know you're going to win. Um, I think there were worries, and I think that those worries um, became uh, increasingly uh, um, uh, so. You know, during during the campaign uh, itself, you know, uh, I think the campaign itself was wrongly framed. I think what happened in that uh, referendum campaign. I think large parts of Welsh society, you know, that had had the rough end of the deal for 20, 30, 50 years, right, they were going to kick a cat somewhere, right, and Europe was the available cat, and it got well and truly sort of kicked. Um, uh, and that I, you know, that I can, uh, uh, I can understand. I think the referendum campaign was winnable, uh, I think a lot of things went wrong. Uh, I think the proximity of the assembly elections, uh, only a few weeks beforehand, um, both in Wales and in, uh, in Scotland, um, was uh, a disaster because the, basically the four parties in Wales have been kicking lumps out of each other for 18 months and you couldn't expect them to turn around on a sixpence. Um, uh, and all you know, work in harmony together. And in fact, we didn't even manage to get a launch campaign uh, with all the parties together. We had it planned, and the last minute, Calvin Jones had to pull out to go to Delhi because of the crisis over uh, the steelworks in Port Talbot. So uh, circumstances were, were, were not propitious, uh, and uh, basically I don't think the parties were able to get the troops out in the way that they had been able to get the troops out in the 1997 referendum on, de on devolution. Um, quite a part, and that is a part, uh, uh, those are particular Welsh circumstances, quite a part from, I think, the Remain campaign centrally, which was misconceived. I mean, because I was chairing the campaign in Wales, I sat on the board of Britain's Stronger Inn uh, with uh, Davy Wigley, and um, we were both very concerned because the, that board in my view, was uh, pretty much a cipher. Basically, the instructions came from number 10 Downing Street. Number, it was all run. You know, Craig Oliver would turn up at the meeting and tell them, you know, this is what is going to happen. The Prime Minister's spokesman. The Prime Minister's, yeah. He was the Prime Minister's Director of Communications. And uh, what worried uh, Davy Wigley, I know, and myself, was that there was no kind of sense of idealism in the uh, uh, campaign. And I think we were turning round, if you like, um, trying to turn round 30, 40 years of um, pretty hostile press for, uh, for Europe. 
Um, uh, and I think that we, we paid the price for, um, if you like, a failure over those decades to really promote um, the European cause in any way. And oddly enough, one of the great paradoxes is that the most powerful presentation of the European cause has happened since the referendum. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, I think that the, the yes side, if you like, the remain side of British, British society and even Welsh society is now more exercised about the European issue than it has ever been before. One of the points that uh, was immediately apparent to me on reading the book and reading the first section of the book, which is a visit that you paid to Auschwitz. Yeah. And you don't actually give any commentary about that or any link to the uh, European material that comes later, but the implicit point that's being made is that after the appalling events of World War Two which were at their worst seen in Auschwitz, the European nations came together uh, to ensure that something like that could not happen again. And so we had decades of, of peace as a consequence, yeah. really, of the European project yeah. moving forward. But during the referendum campaign, this sort of historical perspective, if you like, this uh, geopolitical sense didn't seem to come across at all. No, I, I think the you know I mean that, that was partly, partly because the 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 Leave side actually you know um, pursued I thought a completely unscrupulous uh, um, uh, campaign. I think it was packed with lies. It was also I think packed with a completely false view of uh, the UK's place in the uh, um, uh, in the world. But I mean going back to the Auschwitz uh, issue, you know, Auschwitz stands for me, you know. I, it's totemic, really, of what a disastrous century the 20th century was in terms of uh, uh, world peace. Countless millions, it was not, not just the, the six million Jews who died in, in Auschwitz, but you know, they stand in a way also for the tens of millions of other people who died during that, uh, that century. And uh, I find it utterly, utterly inexplicable and, and, and unpalatable uh, that politicians should actually uh, ignore that fact or pretend that these things can never happen again. Go around the edges of, uh, of Europe. Just look at the amount of Russian troops on the edges of the Baltic states. Look at what's happening in Crimea and in the uh, Ukraine. Uh, look at what's happening in, um, uh, in Turkey look at the number of people who are coming up through Africa and crossing the Mediterranean into, you know, th this is a big, big geopolitical thing and we are not going to answer any of those problems as a single uh, country. You're only going to answer those problems, I think, on a continental basis. But why do you think the Remain campaign was so useless in not getting that message across. I think that the I think Cameron was was dreadfully complacent uh, uh, about it. Um, I, I think you know I think history will deal very very harshly with uh, David Cameron. And I think there were there were m many many um, uh, misjudgments. And what I can't abide about, if you like, the Boris Johnson approach, is the frivolity of it. The frivolity in dealing with issues of peace. And in dealing with the economic circumstances of a large part of the British population, you know, 
it is outrageous in my view, and I, I, I do feel a real uh, anger about that. And I, but uh, so I think the Conservative Party, I think you know, uh, demands uh, 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 responsible for uh, for this problem because essentially it's been around a division in the Conservative Party. But I have to say that Labour also has to take its share of the blame too, and particularly the Labour leadership. Uh, you only have to read the detailed accounts of the referendum campaign. However many, uh, and I know that sort of defenders of Jeremy Corbyn, have sort of they, they can trot out you know, a couple of speeches that were made you know, um, in some town hall at the dead of night. Um, but everybody knows that, that you know, the Labour leadership during the referendum campaign did not put the energy and the enthusiasm and the belief and the idealism into that that they should have done. Well, Jeremy Corbyn had a long history of being opposed to the European yeah, Union, of course. And I suppose some of his advisers were also involved in that. I mean, Seamus yeah, Milne. Yeah. There, was no, there was no doubt Seamus Milne was, was a, a major sort of drag anchor on, the, uh, on, on Labour's involvement in the, uh, in the Remain campaign. And I think that's why I think one of the tasks now, really, is to get the Labour Party up to the mark. I mean, it is, you know, if anybody's going to stop Brexit, it's, it's going to be the Labour Party. And I think that uh, the more that is done to sort of push the Labour leadership to a firm position on this, the, uh, uh, the better. I think part of it may be because they were spooked by the uh, vitriolic nature of uh, some of their potential supporters towards them. I, mean, I remember being uh, down on Barry Island for an event where Alan Johnson, who was the leader of the... Yeah. Labour in campaign came along and he was walking along a promenade for a, a photo opportunity and there were a number of people who were there who were just, I thought, ordinary people. They weren't people who had uh, been brought there by any opposing group who were shouting things like traitor at him. The referendum campaign was a very, very ugly campaign. I mean, I can remember standing uh, in Queen Street in Cardiff and having people sort of banging their finger into my chest and sort of in the most abusive way. I mean, it was a, you know, somebody who believes in rational argument, it was, uh, it was, uh, it was pretty d discouraging and quite shocking in its, uh, uh, in its way. But I think the nature of the Leave campaign, you know, let that, that poison out of the bag. Uh, and uh, I, I think people, f particularly with the emphasis on immigration and so on, and, and I mean, I saw on the streets in Cardiff, you know, overt racism that may have existed, you know, below the parapet, you know, for, for many years, but it suddenly became overt, you know. And I, I think in that sense, it was a, it was a very uh, disfiguring event. At what point did you come to the conclusion that Wales was going to vote leave, Garrett? Well, it was um, the week before the vote. I remember there was a meeting of the Britain Stronger Inn board uh, in London, um, and it was, I think, the day or two days before the murder of Joe Cox. Um, and it was clear from the data being presented to that board that things were not going the right way. You know, the opinion was not shifting uh, uh, in our direction. And I, I, I remember uh, at that meeting um, raising the issue and saying, look, 
if these figures don't shift over this weekend, into the last week, you know, what are we going to do in that final week? If you remember during the Scottish referendum, the, the Unionist parties you know, suddenly found they were behind in the polls and the vow was pulled out of the hat in the last week. You know. I say, you know, what's going to be our equivalent of a vow you know, in the last week? And uh, remember, Stuart Rose, the uh, was Chang, sort of you know waved a hand, and said, "No, no, you know there is only Plan A." <laughs> um, and I, I must admit, I went away from that. He meeting. was quite a hapless figure, wasn't he? Because he didn't even know the name of his own organisation. Well, you know, the, the, yeah. I mean, he, uh, but it was. Um, I went away from that meeting, uh, really, sort of very worried. And then, of course, you had the murder of uh, Joe Cox. And I suppose that some people in the Remain camp wondered whether that would change the atmosphere in any way, but it didn't. Um, and but coming back to the Welsh result, let's not forget that that if you take England and Wales, right, Wales had the lowest Leave vote outside London and the southeast. It's much lower than the north of England. So um, uh, you know, in that sense, I think the vote in Wales was. Um, uh, was a bit narrower. I think that's because of the nature of the nature of the place you know, and its um, uh, its political past. And I don't think that it's impossible to think that that um, opinion can be turned around. Obviously, we're now in a position where uh, things have got messy. They've got very complicated. Uh, there's a great deal of uncertainty about what's going to happen. Like you, I've been to quite a few conferences which have been held where people have been. Uh, in some cases quite agonised over the situation but it's very difficult to predict what exactly is going to happen I know that you have organised a number of lectures that have been given by um, prominent uh, Remain type people and yet uh, even they I think would probably say that they don't know what's going to happen what is your perspective now Geraint uh, in terms of what is likely to happen over the next few months People who know me would say I'm, that I'm a serial optimist, um, and I've got to be aware of that. Uh, and there are times where I'm sort of quite pessimistic about what will happen. So um, I have to sort of rely on Macmillan's famous saying, events, dear boy, events. You know? uh, and I think it is now difficult to see a deal uh, that will command a majority in Parliament. And wouldn't it be extraordinary if we were to take a decision to come out of Europe on a majority of one or two in Parliament? That would be an absolute nonsense in my view. So I think there is real pressure building uh, for there to be uh, uh, what is now called a people's vote on whatever deal is agreed. You've seen the publication of uh, a letter by more than 30 politicians. Uh, the leader replied, um, a lot of Labour MPs, uh, Kirsty Williams from the Liberal Democrats and so on. There is a cross-party mood building up in favour of uh, another referendum. I mean, personally, I, I, I've grown to dislike referenda. Um, they're a very, very blunt instrument. But I honestly feel that you can't... Um, change this decision without it going back to the country I mean you could argue that you know Parliament itself could take this decision 
but I think that, that would be subject to a lot of criticism. So I think you have to take it back uh, to the country. And I think that if we did, I think there is um, a very strong chance, I think, that we could actually get a decent majority in, um, in favour of Remain. The, the issue would be, what is the question that will be put to the country? And my view would be that remaining in the European Union has to be one of the options. Mrs May, of course, has completely ruled that out, hasn't she? Yes, she has. We know that there is an overwhelming majority of members of Parliament you know, who believe that this course of action is a mistake. So we, you know, we would be taking this decision uh, against the judgment of the majority of elected uh, uh, members. And I think, uh, you know, I, I, I know that there were people who argued, so, you know, well, the decision was taken. We're now, we're now a good more than two years on. We will be almost three years on by, um, by March uh, 2019. And we know more. Um, we've started to see the complexity of this. Business has started to see the complexity of it. You know, when I look at, say, the Labour Party, uh, you know, some people have argued that the EU um, would be a block against Labour uh, implementing a manifesto. I think absolutely the reverse is the case. Uh, it's not a question of Labour won't be able to do what it wants to do if it's a member of the EU. It won't be able to do what it wants to do unless it is a member of the, uh, of the uh, EU. Because if we pull out of the uh, EU, I think Britain's economic circumstances uh, will be much more difficult. A Labour government traditionally faces some hostility from markets, you know, um, and I think uh, uh, Jeremy Corbyn, if he suddenly found himself in Downing Street, would face more difficulties from the markets than Tony Blair did in uh, in, uh, in '97. You know, the Labour Party is going to need every possible inch of financial headroom it can muster if it wants to put its uh, um, uh, its manifesto uh, uh, in, into practice. So, you know, I, I think that it is certainly in Labour's interest to prevent Brexit happening. It's also in Plaid's interest. Plaid has certainly, you know, uh, has had a um, uh, a feeling for Europe over the years, and it surprised me a bit that Plaid itself hasn't taken a more robust uh, view of um, uh, of uh, the, the European issue. You know, it, for me, I don't see any reason why Plaid couldn't have actually gone down the same route as the Liberal Democrats. Isn't it something to do with the fact that the leader of Plaid Cymru represents a constituency that voted heavily uh, for Leave? Well, that may be, but when you look at the situation of the party overall. Um, you know, from 17 seats in, 1990, um, uh, in 1999, it's now down to about 10. You know. So uh, it, it has got, could have carved out a position for itself on this you know, um, that might have broadened its support. Another of the points that comes across uh, in your book uh, very strongly is concerns over uh, academic and scientific research. Yeah. Uh, because there are an awful lot of projects... Uh, that are done on a collaborative basis uh, involving universities uh, in other EU countries which have partnerships with British universities and Welsh universities, yeah. of course, are included in that. What do you see coming from that? I mean, if we, if we leave the European Union, is there going to be huge damage done to academic research and projects? Well, what you've got to understand is that Welsh universities are 
disproportionately dependent on European funding for their research, right? You know, across the UK, I think about 50% of the um, uh, research funding is actually sort of coming out of Europe. In Welsh universities, it's about two-thirds now. It's a, it's a big difference. The Welsh universities are in a situation where we're playing catch-up. You know, we are a long way behind in terms of the... Um, not the quality of our research, but the volume of quality research. You know, we've got to double it. And coming out of uh, Europe is not going to make that any easier. Now, I'm sure that the uh, UK government, it, it will want to buy its, buy its way into the Horizon 2020 budget line in, uh, in Europe. You know? um, and I don't know whether that is going to be possible. But even if we buy in, one of the difficulties is that um, the Brexit thing has changed the mentality in, other, in the universities in other European countries. And I know, for example, that, that you know, there are cases, there's a case in a point in Cardiff, uh, where Cardiff University was going to lead a major uh, European research program, you know, and the other rest of the uh, universities and elsewhere in Europe asked Cardiff whether it would actually relinquish the leadership of that to go elsewhere. It's, you know, it's, that, it's that kind of qualitative change you know, um, that is not going to help universities at all. And certainly I can see it um, on the uh, cultural front. I mean, I was involved with, uh, with WNO for, for you know, more than a decade. I mean, at the time I left WNO, I think the company was either actively collaborating with or in discussion with um, something like 20 opera companies in 10 different countries in Europe. You know? um, you know, we've had a, a, an Italian music director, we've had a German uh, um, music director, we now have a Czech music uh, uh, director. You know? um, uh, the cultural world is essentially international and is very, very European. If you go to these, the National Dance Company of Wales, you know, Half their contracted dancers actually come from other countries in uh, um, uh, in Europe. You go to Aberystwyth uh, um, uh, University and to uh, the Mercator Project, which is actually looking at literature across the frontiers. You know, go anywhere you like in the cultural field, and the the interaction with Europe is an absolutely natural thing. And I've just come back from ten days in uh, in Germany, quite by chance. You know, I, I went to Cologne. I went to a fantastic um, uh, exhibition in a gallery in Cologne. You know, and it just happened there were two pieces there by Welsh artist Bethan Hughes, suddenly sort of out of the blue. She was one of the artists who represented Wales when it first went to the Venice Biennale in 2004. We took a train on to Göttingen in central Germany. We went to the Handel Music Festival. One of the soloists in a concert there was a Welsh soprano, uh, Fleer Wynn. Uh, we took a train on to, uh, to, to Hamburg. Now, Hamburg is, is a place where Michael Bogdanov, you know, born in Nice, um, great proponent of Welsh theatre, you know, he was the chief executive of the National Theatre of Germany in Hamburg for, for three years. You know. um, uh, there is a completely natural sense of Europe you know, uh, in the cultural uh, uh, sphere. And a lot of that depends on the freedom of movement of artists and people. Let's just imagine that your wish comes true and that there is uh, a, a people's vote, uh, as you call it, or as a second referendum, as others refer to it. Are you confident that the 
people who would support uh, a Remain campaign as the leaders of it would be able to come together and mount uh, a campaign that would have credibility and would win because we've already spoken about how badly the Remain campaign was organised last time. What is there that makes you think it will be better next time? The result last time. <laughs> I think that uh, I think that people know where it went wrong last time, and I think that they will um, hopefully have learnt some of those uh, uh, some of those lessons. We now understand better than we ever did quite how much is at stake for the UK, but for particularly for a place like Wales. And I, th I think it is, it is perfectly possible to turn that result around, not to a narrow Remain vote, but to a, a really solid uh, uh, Remain vote that can be convincing and lasting. Geraint Helvan Davis, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week. Thank you.